Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. Uh, I'm your host, David Gibney, this week. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, uh, Michelle Byrne and Claire O'Connor. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to go straight to the front pages of the papers. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to plug Left Block <laughs> and our Patreon. Um, if you like the work that we do, go to www.patreon.com forward slash left block. That's block with a C and no K. Uh, just always have to get to plug in. So we'll go to you, Michelle, first to say, see what newspaper you've been reading, what the front pages are saying. So I took one for the team this week and I read the Irish Independent. Um, and yeah, it was interesting experience to say the least. But there's there's two stories on the front of the paper. Um, one is obviously the, the health system paralyzed for days by cyber criminal gang. Everyone's talking about this at the moment. Um, but I suppose, yeah, obviously this is huge. The government are saying that they're not going to be paying the ransom that's been demanded. Um, and they said that that would set a precedent for further ransomware to attack their systems. But actually tens of thousands of patients have been affected by this. And it's actually quite worrying. Like the kind of list here as well, people from the people who are most affected are cancer patients, people in for scans and tests, outpatients, COVID-19 vaccinations, COVID-19 tests, and TUSLA actually, um, their systems were down as well. So it's going to be an interesting, they say it's going to take around a week or so to get back on track. Um, and they have the pictures of the army I saw being tweeted, um, like up at the computers trying to solve this kind of odd, I uh, saw a TD call Crow saying, you know, we're, we're great to have the army and to save day or something along those lines. So interesting. Um, but I, I know they, they're kind of, at the moment, they've described it inside the paper as very much a firefighting exercise at the moment and then they'll consider what they'll do next in relation to like investigation wise but they're in the middle of fighting fire so um i suppose we'll, we'll watch that develop as it goes on but um you know you'd think that there'll be some learnings like at the moment some of the things that they're saying at the moment is that this is going to be one of the the, the biggest threats now is like this kind of like data hacking um kind of ransom uh type attacks um i know that the National College of Ireland and TU Dublin Tala were both uh, attacked by the same kind of thing last year. So it's obviously something that people need to start learn, learning more on and so that we put up the protections, particularly with such sensitive data when it comes to our healthcare systems. Um, the other story that's on the front of the paper is suitcases of cash taken by former Boher boss. Like, this is bizarre. Um, the disgraced former Boher uh, charity chief, David Maloney has admitted to taking suitcases full of cash out of the charity over uh, a period spanning 21 years, mounting up to 1.1 million euro. Now, he doesn't claim that all, that 1.1 million is all attributed to him, but he does admit taking cash out of suitcases. Like, I just think the visual of that, of this man carrying a suitcase around a path is just bizarre. Um, he's been the CEO for the last 10 years of that. So, like, been very interesting he said but there's lots of questions been asked around well where is this cash what's what has he done with it and um, so they had kind of freezed all his assets and now they're like well where did you spend all that cash and he's like oh my lifestyle my lifestyle and he kind of says he was being very generous with cash uh to his family and friends on birthdays as if like all those 20 euros are going to somehow add up to like 1.1 million euro and uh Apparently he paid off his mother's uh, car tax annually to the amount of 300 euro, but like still huge questions as to where a million euro has gone. Um, but he claims that, you know, it's all gone. It's all done in his lifestyle. Um, 
But yeah, he he went, he he tried to cover up his tracks anyway. He shred loads of documents there before Christmas. He was uh, deleting emails. Yeah, so he tried to mislead the investigation when creating fraud receipts and all. Um, but yeah, lots, still lots of questions about where uh, that money has gone. But they've, okay, they've, just- since, they've since loosened up the, the restriction on uh, his assets just so that he can pay his legal bills, his childcare and his rent. Um, but yeah, it doesn't look good. Yeah, because he's also, I mean, he's saying that his wife had nothing got to do with it and she never benefited from it. I mean, if your other half is taking in over a million in illegal funds, like it's, it's benefiting you somehow, whether you knew about it or not. But a hundred grand of it, a hundred grand of that money actually went into a pension. Like he, he was, he was just taking massive amounts of money. And like, and, but apparently, because one of the issues I took with this, I, this is, I feel like this is only broken really in the news, um, in the past kind of day or two. Uh, so. It's a civil case that's been taken against him at the minute. It's not even a criminal case. There is a criminal case being looked into on the 100,000 that he, he set up for his own personal pension. That was like he basically stole it. Um, but when I look back at the kind of, the, remember the situation around Consol and Paul Kelly who, who died last year? And that was kind of the biggest scandal. I know we had rehab and stuff like that, but like if somebody literally just bleeding the charity dry, like I have been involved i've set up a charity i've gone through the regulatory process i've looked after the finances i know particularly for a smaller charity like ours the hoops you have to go to like the, the how compliant you have to be and again like it's almost onerous on a smaller charity and um, i'm just like how on earth like suitcases full of cash and this was this whole there was a whole like obviously it's like a farming it's uh, a farming charity and it's to help it's an agricultural um charity there were funds basically projects in africa that he 200 grand was donated to to some nuns in africa to run this agricultural project and they never got a penny of it i'm just like he had the balls to just not be even just drib drabbing little amounts here and there like you know that you you think right well maybe nobody noticed for the past 10 years he was taking whole grants like 200 grand for the one project and he was just like taking it i'm just absolutely stunned by how it was able to how they were able to get away with it for so long because it sounds like it wasn't just him either and that there's people who used to work there too that were involved in that. I mean, this was a massive, like, I just walk, I just, the whole visual of walking out with suitcases full of cash for me is like the moral side of it. Like how he's, he's with them since 1985. So he was working with them for years. I can't imagine having the level of commitment to a place that you helped to build and then be so willing to just absolutely bleed it dry. It's just, I just, I was stunned looking at it. Yeah. I just think it's absolutely horrific. Uh, it's crazy. There is coverage in the Irish Times today as well in relation to it. Um, I'll, I'll cover the front page of the Irish Times first and then we go to you, Claire, to see what you've been looking at. Uh, similar story on the front. Medical appointments cancelled as cyber attack disrupts IT system. Um, and one of the lines in it, in the middle of the article, is a ransom in Bitcoin has been sought by criminal elements behind the attack on the HSE. But the body says uh, this will not be paid in accordance with state policy. And then there's a quote from the Taoiseach. We're very clear we will not be paying any ransom. And I would imagine that the hackers probably thought that, you know, we'll go in, we'll disrupt the system. We'll probably end up delaying a lot of medical procedures. And that will really get to the Irish state. But little did they count on the Irish state not giving a shit about how quickly you get seen to medically anyway. There's, as Brendan O'Connor on the radio this morning was saying, 880,000 uh, people are waiting on appointments in Ireland. Like you think about the population of Ireland, five and a half million, and almost one fifth of them are waiting on medical procedures. Imagine being the hackers and finding that out and going, 
shit, we targeted the wrong healthcare system of the wrong country because they really don't care anyway. Um, and then the second uh, big story there is differences remain uh, after Checkers Summit. Uh, and that's in relation to Michal Martin meeting up with Boris Johnson and having a conversation um, about the Northern Ireland Protocol and all of the other stuff uh, that we'll probably get into in a couple of minutes about Bally Murphy um, uh, and Brexit and, and some of the other bits around it. I don't want to get too much into it myself right now because I do want to talk about that properly in detail in a few minutes about all of those stories, uh, particularly the the um, Edwin Poots winning the election uh, for leader of the DUP, the, uh, this stuff on the Checkers Summit, there's also the, um, as I said, the Ballymurphy stuff. So we've a lot to get into that in relation to that stuff. So I'll go to you first, Claire, to see if what's, what's on the front page of what you've been reading. Yeah, a lot of the same stuff on the front of the examiner. Um, patients face delay after HSE system hacked. I saw some really sad, some people kind of sharing their stories, particularly people living with cancer who've missed appointments. And I just think it's, you know, there's, you see the different types of hackers, like these kind of hacks are happening all the time. You see individuals hacked, you see people hacked as a, as a way of protest. I think to target a health system is just one of the most inhumane things you can do. I totally agree. I mean, like, it's not like people are getting, most people are getting appointments very soon anyway, uh, in terms of the government's, um, prioritizing it. But I just think it's absolutely inhumane in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate exploitation of the situation, but, it's it's just really it's really devastating and it's really worrying it's also it's, it's just a sign of the times as well like this kind of thing is going to start happening more regularly like it's we live in such a digital world i heard that um the coom i think don't have a, a computerized system yet that like everything is on paper the records are on paper so they were laughing yesterday um you know they like they they didn't have to cancel appointments they were able to access people's records but i just think if you have a fully digitalized system as well and you are vulnerable to an attack like this what do you do if you're some you know you have somebody in hospital and they have to go for an emergency surgery and you can't access their records to see if they're what they're allergic to or you can't see you know there's such there could be such devastating consequences for it and um, it is further on in the examiner as well it talks about how this could go on for weeks so um i don't think that's going to be resolved anytime soon there's a large part across the front of the examiner the human faces of the housing crisis and it's basically there is a double spread inside uh just people telling their stories and this is again we talked about this last week it's just another kind of follow on of how it's reached this critical mass and all of a sudden we are hearing people's stories we're here it's like everybody is sitting up and taking notice and um and and probably more than that everybody's known about this for a long time it's like they're realizing that it's the government's fault it's like they're realizing like actually it shouldn't be like this and you should be doing something about it um there is a story about Poots, uh, the man who thinks the world is 6,000 years old, um, become the new DUP leader. And it says he's origin unionist to fight the Brexit protocol. But, you, you know, we're going to get into that. The story about five guards charged over penalty points allegations. And it's, um, most of them are retired actually, but it's gone back to some of them are, uh, you know, sporting and media personalities. And they cover, you know, alleged speeding, if they produce insurance, holding mobile phone while driving. Um, not wearing a seatbelt, no insurance, and basically it's around the guards kind of watching this. Um, there's a couple of small stories, and this is kind. Of, this is actually what drew, drew me attention primarily to the front page of the paper this week. I was expecting maybe you know a massive story about Gaza uh, and what's happening in Palestine. Uh, there is the headline is Palestinians flee their homes, and in fairness, it's one of these really you know it's a really small piece at the bottom, and it is then covered. There's a double spread spread on page twelve and thirteen, so it is covered in detail. But thousands of Palestinians have fled their homes as Israel barrages the northern northern Gaza Strip with tank fire and airstrikes, killing a family of six in their house and heavily damaging other neighbourhoods in 
what it said was an operation to clear militant tunnels. So I was glad to see, because when I saw the headline, Palestinians flee their homes, I was like, well, that doesn't even touch on what's actually happening over there. But, you know, when you go into it, it is at least, <laughs> I suppose it is portraying as Israel attacking Palestine instead of some of the horrific uh, narratives we've seen pop up over the past couple of days from more leaders. And again, I think we'll, we'll get into that separately in a bit more detail, but it was more, I, I would rather see more front and centre on the front of the paper. Um, and more importantly, there is nothing on the front of the paper about Bally Murphy. Uh, and I know it's, you know it's been covered during the week, but the fact that it's just to me, like you mentioned Michal Martin there, Michal Martin called it the, the Bally Murphy situation, you know, when it, it's a massacre. It was a massacre and that's now actually being acknowledged as a massacre. And yeah, we'll get into it in more detail, but it was disappointing not to see it on the front page um well it probably was during the week but i just you know the weekend pay- paper some people only sit down with the weekend papers uh there is a small story there as well timely move on mortgages funnily enough i only heard about this uh company for the first time today avant money and it's talking about how they've moved in to keep its place as the lowest cost mortgage lender in ireland um you know just as ulster bank and kbc have announced that they're going to exit the the markets here so it's i've never heard of them It'd be interesting to see what they're actually about i mean our mortgage market here is so dodgy and so um insecure if you're not with one of the banks that you know the kind of state will bail out if they get into trouble so uh it'd be interesting what to watch yeah i think michelle you might want to come in on one of them yeah just on that that story claire it's really interesting to hear you say that there was reported quite well on the palestinian uh, struggle because i cannot say the same uh for the independent um there is a piece here that says palestinian death toll hits 130 israeli forces set up attacks on gaza Right, you'd think that you'd be on the like fairly all right uh, train of track with that, but then the whole article is just quotes from the Israel uh, Defense Forces and the Israeli Army. Like that's the whole the whole piece is made up of that. So you're, it's really kind of telling a one side thing. It's why they did this and why they killed this person. This person was been uh, so yeah. It just uh, yeah, it was a tough read because it, it, to me it doesn't reflect what we're seeing, what I'm seeing online. It doesn't reflect. Um, the why this is happening in the first place um like i will it does mention that there was two thousand protesters that have uh tried to try to make their way from jordan in solidarity and i saw videos of this online i thought it was incredibly moving and um, to see people come in and trying to support the palestinians um from areas around but yeah the rest of it is just essentially uh quotes from the idf and the israeli army and it's not something that i'm particularly going to be up for repeating but uh they do mention that they had 160 aircraft uh, which dropped hundreds of mis- missiles. So that's the kind of scale that we're dealing with at the moment, 160 aircraft over a space the size of Loud um, and it's like with 2 million people in it. Like that's just bizarre when you try to picture that. And it's, and it's also like, not only do they have that attack system, they have one of the most advanced missile defense systems in the world. So I actually saw the ambassador um, on prime time. I was watching like, you know, I was watching this morning. And, you know, they keep talking about, like, the amount of indiscriminate rockets coming from Hamas and coming from um, Gaza. And it's like, how many of them are actually hitting? You know, when you look at... And the thing is, is, like, when I look at... I, I was just at 4 o'clock in the morning the other night just watching those live streams, watching videos, and just getting so worked up about... Because it was the day that Biden had come out. Not that I'm surprised at all, you know, at the stance that America would take, but Ursula von Leyen coming out and trying to pretend that they're both sides and if both sides and it will be bad enough when you have a situation that the balance of power is so off 
I mean, you only have to look at the debt all. You only have to look at the debt all over the years from them. Um, the the it's not a conflict. It's it's slaughter. It's absolutely it's slaughter from the Israelis to the Palestinians. But in the past couple of days, there's been so in Gaza, there's been 140 Palestinians killed. 39 of them are children. I mean, like 39 children, like, and this has gone on days, and this is the choice that the Israelis are making to, to send the rockets in because their missile defense system protects them on the whole. Um, nine Israelis have died. And don't get me wrong, they're nine innocent people. It, like any loss of life is obviously horrific. But the idea that you have 140 Palestinians dying, sorry, and another 13 in the West Bank as well, so 153 Palestinians dying have been murdered and, and nine Israelis just shows the complete imbalance of power and the complete imbalance in the military um, the systems that they're using. And then you have Biden coming out and completely backing Israel, saying they the right to defend themselves. When Israel were the ones who went in and started to try to displace Palestinians again, they went in attacking, you know, and one of the most sacred days of the year to to Muslims in, in the mosque. Like, it's just and one of the most sacred sites. Like, the idea that this can happen. Yeah. And like, it's it, it's just absolutely horrific. And then Ursula von Leyen, like, I am just so disgusted. I like, I, she doesn't represent me. And I don't she represents anybody, any of us that have any kind of sense of um, solidarity with, with the Palestinian people. I mean, watching videos and we're seeing videos of children being murdered, of innocent families being, like, they're, they're attacking residential buildings. They're making people homeless. They're displacing them. They're attacking utilities. Like, they're committing war crimes. They they bombed uh, the, like a media office. They're bombing journalistic sites so that people can't get the message out to the rest of the world. And the thing is, is like, all we hear is about uh, where um, they're, they're human shield. And how can you, like, if you're attacking a residential building with hundreds of people in it if you're attacking a, a place like you said that is so overpopulated one of the most third most densely populated uh, places in the world like you can't hit anybody without there being a huge loss to innocent life of and the idea that you know will hammer around the attack what else are they going to do realistically the world aren't coming to their aid like the world are sitting by and letting this happen like europe that is supposed to be you know some like one of its functions is supposed to be peacekeeping ursula Leiden Leiden comes out you know says she, you know, the loss of life on both sides is devastating and has to stop. But singles out uh, the attacks on Israel. Like she singles out the Palestinians. She singles out Israel as being the the Palestine being the aggressor and Israel being the the victim here. And it's just it's so far from reality. It just shows how warped power is and how warped dominance is and what they actually care about. And I've seen some great arguments about how. Um, Israel and the defense system particularly are for Europe down the line seen as kind of going to be the first line of defense when it comes to climate refugees. And I thought that was a really interesting argument that's come up over the past couple of days about just another, you know, listen, you look at the likes of Ursula von Leyen's kind of Christian Democrat background and Germany in particular, you know, the won't want to be seen to go against Israel at any cost. But like, I do think that's a really interesting argument around seeing Israel almost as this force of all of defense down the line when it comes to climate refugees and how just how cold and how cruel that that kind of thinking is it's 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 really upsetting uh week for a lot of people um not least which obviously are the people in palestine when you're watching some of the videos and i'll give a plug to the tortoise shack because they've done some really good uh journalism this week in relation to it in, in touching base with a friend of theirs over in palestine who's been doing the podcast with them and then the, the videos that they've uploaded this morning on their Twitter accounts go on to Tony Groves' Twitter account to watch some of them because they're really impactful. But um, Israel is what I would define as the most organized country in the world in terms of not just its military, 
but it's public relations and it's um it's media control uh even though the the articles in the Irish Times I would say today are fairly relatively balanced they're not the worst in in relation to it you know you you, you probably have worse ones there yourself Michelle but even in this when you listen to this sentence and just think about how it's portrayed of these two sentences the current hostilities began on Monday with a massive rocket salvo from Gaza aimed at the Jerusalem area following days of clashes in Israel's capital including around the Al-Aqsa uh, mosque in the old city like how can you how say is that starting <laughs> like how can you say the missiles from Gaza started it and then it goes on to say um Palestinian anger was fueled by plans to expel residents from the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood to make way for Jewish families. So they start off by saying it started with the rockets, which actually was the last part of it. <laughs> and then the end of the sentence, which tells you why the rockets came, which was the expulsion of Palestinian families from Palestinian land to make way for settlers, Jewish settlers to, to, to settle in. That's colonizers, right. like they're colonizers. And that's the language that's not being used enough. This is just a for their perpetuation of Israeli colonization. It's just, like you said, they're just so good at the PR. They're so organized. They're so shiny when they come out and they use these defenses. And you know what ultimately it is, is that when far too much of the world looks at black and brown people being abused and slaughtered in this way, it doesn't, um, they don't believe it could happen to them. So they're able to turn away too quickly. Like that is when I, like the other night, um, I had like my little fellows in the bed beside me and I just, Look, I was looking at these videos of these kids and some of them were, you could hear babies crying in the background, listening to the bombs. You could, And I'm looking at my kids like asleep in bed and safe and just how far removed, how we could never even begin to imagine the level of terror that those children are being put through because these uh, Israeli colonizers wanted to go in and just take that land and they're being allowed to. And when I was going onto Twitter and I was sharing this, the hashtags were just really disturbing because up at the top of, you know, it was like... um. Israel under fire, um, our Palestinian terrorist, terrorists, you know, Gaza terrorists, Hamas terrorists. Like it was, there were some as well that were like Palestinian lives matter and, um, you know, Gaza under attack. But there was far more. And the ones that were trending were the ones that were portraying Israel as the ones under attack. And it's just one of those, like, I just felt really uh, helpless and hopeless in that, like, they are managing the narrative worldwide and world leaders are coming out and portraying these as the, um, as, as Palestine as the aggressors. And when you have that, like what it must be like to be living that and see such lies, you know, because nobody's coming to help you if they see it as the aggressor. And more importantly, even if, even if like it, that was the case that, um, Hamas were the aggressors and they had, like the colonization wasn't what started this. When you look at the imbalance of power between these two states, like how that can be allowed to happen with again millions of innocent people living in one state and they're about to come into a war with another state that is that outperforms them so much that we're looking at the death toll is literally like it's hundreds of times what the Palestinians are what the what the Israelis are suffering and I just think that no there's not enough focus on that there's not enough the, the lack of humanity in the responses from far too many war leaders just shows how incapable they are of representing us and how just people's lives don't actually matter. The politics of it all is just soul destroying and it, it's just, and we're no better. Simon Coveney's response was absolutely shameful. I mean, absolutely. I don't think he represents the majority of Irish people on this issue, but he, they are in government and people need to have a, 
if anybody supports Palestine, if it sees this for the human rights violation it is and vote for Gael, I hope this opens their eyes to the level of the lack of humanity and the level of brutality within that party and the policy they're willing to inflict because it, this is just an extension of how their politics isn't rooted in caring about people and humanity because nobody could respond the way they responded to the kind of barbaricness that's happening to the Palestinian people right now. What it shows as well that the Israelis are watching exactly what Ireland say. Like uh, the Israeli ambassador was pulled up on what Simon Coveney um tweeted about immediately. Um, but as you said, like they not don't represent um what the feelings are of the people. Like at, right now, there is tons of protests happening across Ireland in support of Palestinians um today, which is great great to see. Um, obviously there is a bit of a concern there where uh, the Irish Palestinian Solidarity Campaign had to officially cancel their protests in Dublin um, because the guards had threatened them um, and yeah, said that they had to call it off. Which are, as we've learned from protests during COVID, that officially telling the organisers to cancel the protest doesn't mean the protest doesn't go ahead. It just means it goes ahead unofficially or without stewards or without organisation, which is actually worse. Like this happened, like not that we need like permission to protest in the first place, but this ambiguity, uh, kind of like this uncertainty of like when and what what we can protest is is kind of a concerning trend because you can see more and more um of the government kind of saying no you, you can only have 15 in a pod and really trying to quell that anger and that that kind of urge to protest and i i do wonder is that why there was never kind of guidelines on what how to protest safely in a, in a pandemic that was uh, never released throughout i know the irish council for civil, Liber- civil liberties were calling for, for since the whole start of the pandemic but this practice of actually trying to cancel a protest um, on the basis that if you cancel it, it doesn't go ahead, it just does not work. Like, um, But also to say, just I saw online as well, if a piece of, like some something good to see, aside from the solidarity protests that we're going to be seeing across the country today, um, the Italian dockers actually um, stopped the, ship, the shipment of arms as well that were going into Israel um, in solidarity. So that's the kind of solidarity we need to see when our politicians and leaders aren't uh, stepping up to the mark. It's the people who can step up to the mark and uh, show solidarity in whatever way they can. And does anybody see uh, what happened in Scotland? Oh, my God. So the two Sikh men, um, I know a lot of people online did think that they were Muslim and um, that they were celebrating Eid, but they actually weren't. They were, they were Sikhs. But I think so what happened was, it was the last day of uh, Ramadan, you know, and the immigration services went into a, a pop, an area that's highly populated with, with immigrants and a lot of Muslims. So they didn't know who they, they were going to take out. But I think the fact that they went in on one of the most um, religious days of the years for Muslim people was just a really, really low move by uh, the, the immigration in the UK. But anyway, they went in and they took two Sikh men out into a van. A, a local man that was living on the road uh went down, threw himself on his bike under the van, under the wheel of the van so that they couldn't move. And I mean, even <laughs> look at the picture of him, when you seen the picture of him coming out, his clothes were all like, you know, refugees are welcome. Like th- he, this is before the, the, whether he threw them on when he saw them coming or whether he was just dressed in these clothes. This is obviously a guy that's really anti-fascist and um, pro-migrant because he had stickers and all over his jacket and his t-shirt was anti-fascist. And, you know, so this guy's obviously living his, his politics, but he went down and the whole street came out and surrounded the van. And it was just one of the best examples of active solidarity I've ever seen. And it was so, so needed, like just so needed. And basically they, the police had, they had, they got, the police came and were facilitating the immigration services, which they're not supposed to do. Um, but they were, they surrounded the, the van. They had all the street, the surrounding areas of the street. There was something like I seen 20 or 30, 
um, police fans, which meant they were obviously planning on going in and like forcibly removing these people and realized whether it was the optics or realized that the, an actual riot would break out because people were not moving. They were lying down in the street and they had to give up. And they basically released a statement and said, you know, in, in the interest of public safety, you know, we're not going to be moving forward with this, with this detention. They let the two men go and the videos, I'm actually getting choked up even thinking about it now because it was just, so badly needed and it was an exact example of active solidarity and I think when we see things like that it does make people more likely to do it people are more likely to do that the next time they see it happening and they know what to do and it was oh it was just so beautiful and yeah it's we really need those moments of active solidarity because the government certainly aren't going to do with us like fair play to your man he was under that van for eight hours um, and also it was also a show of strength of like anti-deportation campaigns and anti-eviction campaigners all coming together like he was underneath that van texting people to like come out like I need more support I'm under a van um but something as well uh just to note on it as well it was kind of worrying I saw some photos going around but some of the police arrived on with those blue lives matter badges um, so I think if you want to know why they were getting involved in the anti-deportation um, case, probably it's something to do with who turned up to the scene, um, which is very, very, very concerning. And that, that kind of uh, underlying, um, yeah, it just makes me very uncomfortable. His name was Declan, by the way, the guy <laughs> who done there. So I, I just said I'd name ah. thing, seeing as it's been popping up on Facebook and I shared a post earlier on in relation to him. Yeah, he was still in his pyjamas and threw himself underneath the van when he was in the pyjamas. And then, as you said, started texting people and all the rest of it. Uh, but, you know, I can't, like people should go and look on Twitter for that video to see the numbers, the amount of people who came out. The, the police were absolutely swarmed by hundreds if not nearly thousands of people who were just not letting that van go not letting those people be deported and an important point was made as well online is that you know in the middle of a pandemic uh they're trying to deport people to you know when we're being told you can't travel you can't do this that and the other um but uh yeah just i don't know i, mean, I just want la- sorry just one last thing on that because what they were chanting it's like he's our neighbor you know he's not going anywhere and they're our neighbors they're not going anywhere they're part of this community they they kept talking about community and neighbors and the fact that they belong there and it was yeah like yeah it was just brilliant and I, i'm gonna now link uh the palestinian story with the Murphy story because you mentioned something about an irish connection there a few minutes ago and you know our government i'm watching how awkward our government are on both issues especially the t-shock talking about bally murphy con situation and i've spoken to about the situation and as you said claire it was a massacre and a similar massacre is currently going on in palestine right now and that's where you you look for leadership in the irish government where they know in the past 40 50 years ago that people in this island were being massacred by a much more powerful state, a powerful state not only in terms of military uh, powers, but in terms of their media and the way they skewed the debate at that particular time to say that these people tarnished them, said some of them were terrorists, they were in the IRA, they they had guns on them. And oftentimes people had guns planted on them after their death. But that's why you sort of, you hope that the Irish government and, and, and leaders on this island would 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 be looking at the Palestinian situation and holding international other like holding the EU to account for the comments of the likes of Ursula von der Leyen. Um, but no, we didn't see that. And the, the, you know, I'm going to go to the front page of the Irish Times again today. Um, and I think what page is it on? It's um, the Edwin Poot story as well. I'm going to go to that one next. Um, 
actually before I come back to the Valley Murphy one. But I was looking through this on page eight. New DUP leader Poots calls on unionism to unite to fight protocol. And one of the really interesting things about this story on this page in particular is that there's there's three or four stories about him being elected, right? Traditional, traditionalist from Paisleyite wing who has courted controversy uh, is, is one of them. And it gives you the background to him. He's opposed to the decriminalization of abortion in the North and has courted controversy controversy over his views on homosexuality and evolution. He is a creationist who believes the earth was created about 4,000 years ago. So Newgrange is out for him. It doesn't exist. It's five and a half thousand years old. So um, that's a pity, all the work that those people put in uh, five and a half thousand years ago. As Minister for Health, he tried to maintain a ban on gay men giving blood, which he which had been lifted everywhere else in the UK, a ban, ban later found by the High Court to be irrational, and he also opposed same-sex couples being allowed to adopt children. Now, this is why I think this podcast is important, because on that story, um, where he's saying that, you know, we don't want to implement the laws that the UK has. We are no different to the people on the island over there, and we need to be treated accordingly. There's literally an article, one one article below it. Court here is Northern Ireland protocol likened to how Vichy regime operated, right? And this article says that there's a group of people, including Poots, Arlene Foster, and a whole range of others, who are now complaining that they're being treated differently than Britain in relation to the protocol, about how the economy works, about how uh, goods enter and exit the the, the, the uh, Northern Ireland. And they're trying to pull down the protocol on the basis that we want to be the exact same as the lads across the water. Isn't it interesting that they want to be the exact same on certain things, but then when it comes to homosexuality, adopting children and all that sort of stuff, they don't want to be the same as them. They don't want the same progress. They only want the same conservative Toryism um, that you'd see over there. But it's, it's interesting even that they're likening likening the protocol to the Vichy regime, how, how it collaborated with Nazis. Like, these guys really need a wake-up call. Someone needs to sit them down and talk to them about what happened under the Nazi regime compared to the Northern Ireland protocol around Brexit. So uh, I just thought that was an interesting one. Uh, I don't know, Michelle, if you have any observations on that one or you want to go on to another story. Well, just uh, on the mention of Nazis, um, oh, there's a, a story here. <laughs> you wonder where I'm going with this. There's a story here on the sale of uh, Communicorp goes ahead this month after minister approval. So this is Dennis O'Brien's Communicorp, which has News Talk and JFM and all. So it's been signed off now by the Culture and Media Minister, Catherine Martin, who said it's not in contrary to the public interest in protecting polarity of media of the state. Um, so it's sold for 110 million. But the reason why I bring this up uh, in this context is because they've sold it off to a uh, buyer, I think that's how they pronounce it. But when it, when this first came, I know this, is, uh, this news has been happening over the last while, but when this first came out, I looked up Briar and in 2013, uh, they were under fire again for magazines that glorified Nazi, the Nazi regime. They had three magazines that were under their company in Germany that were glorifying Nazis. And they, there was discussion at the time around, you know, removing the rights to the broadcasting licenses were being reconsidered. But actually what got, got it down in the end was the workers. The workers in Breyer said, we're going to strike if you don't stop publishing that newspaper. And that's clearly glorifying Nazi violence. Um, and that's that's what they shut it down. So um, just thought it brought that in as a little segue into your to the mention of Nazis. But interesting, that, that, that piece is in the Irish Independent, very small, but... 
Uh, obviously, they don't mention any of the, the bad connections I prior from before in 2013, but I said I'd, I'd just I'd fill in the gaps they left out. Can I just, on the Ballymurphy uh, report um, and the inquest and the fact that yeah, it was a massacre and it was 50 years these families have been waiting for some kind of justice. And again, this isn't justice. Like their their family members were murdered and they were their reputations were destroyed even after they died. And the level of harm that was caused to those families on top of the trauma that they already experienced is, it, it's not a one-off though. This is what states of dominance and people in positions of power do this is what structures in power do when something like this happens it's the same thing that happened in Hillsborough it's the same thing that happened with the stardust you blame the victims you blame the victims to take responsibility off the state um, and now we have the UK government looking to change the, the law so that um, soldiers there's like a time limit on when soldiers can be prosecuted and they, they, they frame it in a way that you know these men were going they, they were doing their duty for their country and it's like first of all war like we have a whole other conversation about war but let's let's say you go down that line of you know people are what what's done in the realms of the legality of war is acceptable right which is obviously bullshit but let's just let's just take that line for a minute this wasn't war these were innocent people that they shot in the back they sought these people out and they shot them and they murdered them the idea that just because you are a soldier i mean if they weren't in duty like if he was sitting in a pub and he whipped out a gun and he shot someone in the head would that still be considered in the line of duty because he happens to be a soldier i mean it's just it's just disgusting what they're planning on doing and again you say these things with a respectable face and a smile with a, you know with a respectable persona and a smile on your face and it's accepted and people don't see i find it really stunning that so often we don't see the brutality of what people are saying and this happens in policy a lot we don't see the violence in policies because there, there's someone, there's a shiny minister on the telly talking about, um, you know, bullshit basically. They're, they're giving us the PR statement and they're saying it with a smile on their face. And if you say something with a smile on your face and with a respectable tone and a good accent, people are just blinded to the actual violence behind it. And that's the kind of thing that, that's happening at the moment with that, with that, um, proposal in Britain. But I think it is amazing for the families. It's 50 years down the line. I just wanted to know as well the inquest mechanism. So, how the Ballymorphy inquest was actually done was a massive influence on, like Darren Mackin is one of the, the Phoenix Law are one of the, the law firms that um, represented um, one of the families in this. And that was where Darren and his partner came down to Lynn Boylan about the Stardust and said, you know, maybe we could use the same mechanism to try and achieve justice for the, the, the Stardust families. So there's just, we've so like, why have we so many of these similar stories that people are waiting decades for justice and we have to have people, uh, it's usually somebody that has been through similar or that has experienced similar, like people who have the, the experience of that kind of oppression and coercion and collusion up the north have come down to try and help, for example, the, the victims of the stardust and the, and the families. And I just think it's a cycle and we need to be, we need to be, um, amplifying and noticing the, the patterns that are happening. And it happens because of this culture of dominance that government has. And it will always prioritize that dominance and protect power, um, than ever put us first or put justice or people are, you know, any kind of humanity first. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, an important point. And another um, important point is, you know, again, going back to the front page of today's Times, Mr. Martin, Michal Martin, our teacher, said that they had discussed, this is him and Boris Johnson, they had discussed the Stormont House Agreement, which laid down processes to deal with legacy issues and victims from which the British government has signaled its intention to depart. Like, this is the British government ripping up an agreed document uh, in how to deal with legacy issues, including people like 
those who were affected by Ballymurphy and Bloody Sunday and all the rest of it. And the precedent that it sets, by the way, when you bring in an amnesty of this nature, uh, especially one that we don't know how it's going to apply, but the the reason uh, Ballymurphy happened, in, as you said there, Claire, 50 years ago, and this now report has said that the 10 people who were murdered, who, who were killed, were murdered, and they were innocent. They hadn't done anything wrong, right? Um, nine of whom were shot uh, by by the British Army, and one was probably a bullet was hit hit him as well by the by the British Army. But that immunity that they got at that particular moment in time led to the fact that they were able to go five months later to Derry and massacre people in Derry as well. And that's what happens when you don't hold people to account, uh, particularly if, if you're a powerful government and a powerful state. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, re- I'm reading through uh, Dennis Bradley's uh, article on page 15 of the Irish Times. And it says here as well, you know, talking about the amnesty, former Prime Minister Theresa May and former head of the British Army, Richard Janet both said during the week that the amnesty would have to be applied uh, equally to paramilitaries as well. So there's, there's a lot of stuff to come out on this. Um, and I, I don't know where Boris Johnson has gone with it. But at the very least, what we deserve on this island is for our Taoiseach to stand up for what's right and to condemn the murder and massacre of innocent civilians. Not to go, it's a situation that we discussed. Nonsense. Um, Michelle, I don't know if you have any other stories you want to move on to. Yeah, I just... Can, just, before, just before we move on from Valley Murphy, can I say one last thing? I'm heading off now. I'm, gonna, I'm heading up to that protest. But on, on Michal Martin um, not acknowledging that, and, and you talked about... You both actually mentioned it a, a couple of minutes ago about politicians on this island not being willing to talk about it. The, like, it's like the elephant in the room. We have to acknowledge the fact as well that anything that might shed any kind of positive light on Sinn Féin, our government is never going to... It, it's just never going to do it. They're never going to say anything that, like, even when you're talking about Palestine, like, there's such a correlation between Hamas and the IRA that if if there's any kind of sympathy or empathy given towards Hamas, then what that will look like will be some kind of understanding towards the, the actions of the IRA. And that will then take away their ability to constantly criticise Sinn Féin about the IRA. Like, so much of this is politics. And the Ballymorphy uh, report is a prime example of that. They're so light on it because they still want to be the good little boys to Westminster and they don't want, you know, they want that friendship and they want to be seen as doing the right thing all the time. But also it's because if they really went hard on it and if they really actually highlighted how horrific the actions of the British Army were in this country, then it would, it would show that so many people felt that they had no option but to get involved in, in Republican, um, paramilitary activity. And that, that's the reality of it. That's what's so deep rooted in all of this is that they're not coming from a place of looking at the facts and being able to look at it from a place of it's in the past, a place of humanity and be able to look at it from the perspective of our fellow countrymen. It's everything is rooted in the politics of today and what might benefit and what might harm Sinn Féin. And that's just really, really worked. I mean, and it just shows the, the kind of low level of politics that we're at in this country when that's what it all revolves around. Yeah, Michelle, you want it in? Yeah, no, it was just to bring in another another story. Um, I suppose I was having a flick through this and I, uh, two pictures caught my eye here in the Irish window. Um, and it's a picture of guards going around a public area and then Portobello Plaza being closed off by barriers. Um, but the title of the article is Rising Confidence That Restaurants and Pubs Reopening Timeline Can Be Met. And I, I can't believe we haven't spoken about COVID almost at all in this this episode. There's been so much other news. 
but the, the pictures don't really align to what the article is about. So the article does talk about, you know, big call and hospital hospitalations um, and uh, that, you know, out there trade is looked to open in June. And I was kind of still confused as to why the images of the policing of the plaza and the barriers are connected. There's a little caption, basically, in the middle of this article about um, the opening where it just says Dublin's Portobello Plaza has been cordoned off for the weekend after outbreaks recently of what the city council called completely unacceptable behaviour of large crowds up to a thousand people gathering to socialise. Now, I saw this going up online where Dublin City Council put up their statement and I immediately was shocked because we're in the middle of a pandemic where they're telling us to go outside that's the safest place for us to be where Dublin housing uh, stock doesn't really lend for a lot of outdoor space in a lot of people's gardens most people are living in apartments and etc etc aside from the fact that Dublin has, doesn't have a lot of public space as it is but they're saying how dare you use an outdoor public space for socializing when we specifically told you to do that and like, how dare you use public spaces as a member of the public as if you somehow own that or something. So we're going to cordon it off, completely barriered off, um, complete, uh, bar- like there's no access. Um, and there's pictures of like, I don't know, builders or something sitting outside eating their lunches on uh, outside the barriers. But I just think this is fascinating, right? Because I, I was following a couple of councillors uh, online who are saying, we've raised this issue with you before. We asked you to take proactive steps if there is any sort of behaviour that you don't seem uh, don't deem to be suitable for that area. Put on a patrol, put on a whatever. And they said, no, no, we can't deal with that because that's a policing issue. But what we can do is shut the whole thing down. But like that's an act of policing in itself. It's policing. It's cutting off a whole public space when we're in the middle of a pandemic when they're literally telling people to go outside in the first place. I just think it's bizarre uh, b- behaviour from Dublin City Council and yeah, I don't know where what's going to happen next or like where people are going to spill out onto it. But like suddenly is being social in a public space antisocial behaviour? Is that what that is now? We're just, you can't be social. Just, do you know what? You can't do anything at this stage. Don't, don't, don't go outside. Don't go inside. Uh, just, it's just bizarre. Like, how are you supposed to do anything? Sorry, go on, Claire. No, go on, Uh, One of the things that I've been reading online is people potentially uh, urinating or going toilet in the area. And that issue isn't um, necessarily about, you know, antisocial behaviour. That issue is about no provision of public toilets. And that's another thing that they don't want to provide in the area or or, or anywhere around. And interestingly, page two of the Irish Times talks about this. And the owner of the Lower Deck pub, which most people from the area will know anyway, faces out on the square. They've been serving the pints, pints there on request from the local residents. So, um, you know, all these the cries of the government, we need to get pubs open, we need to protect jobs and all that sort of stuff. And same from the council and all the rest, we need to. Here's, here's a, a situation where a pub is allowed to serve the pints to people as long as they stay, you know, their takeaway cups and all the rest of it, stay in the area. But because we in Dublin don't provide proper facilities for people outdoors we're not used to people having nice weather and all that and yeah what i can imagine happen now over the weekend is there'll be a few arrests or 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 interventions in house parties where people will gather together and be told you can't do that either so you know you're, you're expecting they're, they're expecting you know to have their cake and eat it too and 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 they can't they're better off just providing that space, give public toilets, police the, 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 you know, or even find if the pubs are open and people are selling drinks around the area, they can provide security or something like that just to make sure that everything's all right. Claire, I think you wanted in on it. 
No, you basically made the point I was going to make that it's not even a policing issue. It's just, it's a public service issue with that they're not providing toilets, they're not providing bins. And, you know, yeah, people should bring their rubbish home with them, but they're not. It's not happening. And if it's not happening like month after month after month, there's one bin in Portobello. Funnily enough, when the when the by-election was called and a, a certain Fianna Gael candidate as currently a councillor um, was chosen, all of a sudden three more bins were actually put in that space, which I found really interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's th- this is about funding. Like this has been raised constantly. And instead of, it's another example of instead of providing a public service, we go into a policing model. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of small example of what actually happens throughout all of our you know, supposed social issues. And it's just a case of like, people want to use a public space, give them the amenities to do so. Like, it's so simple. It's it's, it's ludicrous. And as you said, Michelle, I'm very concerned that we haven't addressed COVID at all uh, during this thing. Um, not really, anyway, but page two, just, we, we've been critical about the COVID stuff for a year now. Uh, actually, yeah, is it, page, is it the 15th? Two days from now will be the anniversary of the first broadcast of the week at work. But, um, Page two here talks about COVID, right? And it's talking about how serious illness and death from COVID-19 has plummeted amid vaccine rollout, the data has shown. So interesting figures here. It says that throughout the pandemic, the general rule was for every 1,000 cases, 50 people would be hospitalised, five would be admitted to ICU and 10 would die. That has fallen to deaths of 10 per 1,000. Sorry, fallen from 10 per 1,000. Deaths have fallen from 10 to 1. Per 1,000 cases, apologies. Um, Hospitalizations are down to 30 from 50 and ICU numbers have fallen to two per 1,000 cases. So it's a a good news story in a way, but just to keep the consistency of me being critical of government, those figures would be much lower had they rolled out the vaccination program properly and got it out on time. And we would be looking at less deaths. There was four deaths yesterday reported. Now, they weren't all from yesterday. They were going back to February as well. But, um, you know, the slower the roll of the vaccine program, the more hospitalizations, the more deaths we've seen. So um, that's one more story. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to come in on this one, Michelle, because this is, I think I reported it last week as well, because they were just rolling it out. But employers are told to contact the department over staffing issues. So uh, the Department, uh, I presume, of Enterprise, uh, Department of Social Protection, not Enterprise Trade and Employment. So any employer who faces difficulties in rehiring staff can notify the Department of Social Protection and the case will be followed up with the workers concerned. Um, And this is in relation to some employers who want to get their places back open. Um, Short notice that they were given. So they're asking their employees to come in and and do the job. And one of the things that struck me immediately was that, you know, you're asking people to come back to work at a time when there's still a lot of COVID around and not very many people have been vaccinated and people are still concerned. And you're asking them to go into spaces like a Penny's or, a, you know, a, a general retail outlet or into a bar or whatever it is and ask them to work and risk not only their lives. And again, we've come to the housing crisis again in a couple of seconds where people are living in cramped conditions. And they know that if they get it, then their loved one could get it and they might have COPD or they might have something that, that, that puts them at extra risk. But rather than deal with that stuff, it's just report the workers if they won't come in. And I, what I find really interesting is there's never been a helpline set up for workers who've had their wages stolen from them. For instance, on average in a year to the WRC inspections is about three million euros of unpaid wages returned to workers they're done just by inspections. They're not done by a helpline from the department to say, rat your employer out and get your money back. They, the, the energy that we put into tackling people on social welfare 
is never the same energy we put into tackling employers who steal money, not only from the workers, but in terms of taxation levels as well, from and, and taxation uh, like PRSI and, and income taxes that are lost. So we never put that, the state never puts those energies into tackling bad employers. Yeah, it's incredibly hypocritical. Like, uh, and you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, like with the housing situation as well. Like people are... It could be living at home with parents who may not be well like there could be living in houses with lots of other people as well who might be at risk or they might be at risk themselves I don't see why workers should be forced to go back to work when we're still technically in a level five-ish are we it's what's it called at this stage I think we're still a level five who really knows um but why should workers have to go on the front line if they're not vaccinated there should be an option there for them to say well I don't feel safe to go back to work is this a workplace health and safety issue and how do we how do we empower workers to kind of challenge it on that, those grounds like but yes no the government are like you know what no actually we'll give you give you the bosses an opportunity here to actually report them for not going back but like where where is the workers rights piece on this like where like they're putting themselves in danger um like have people just forgotten because the shops are open like oh god now we can all relax if a sign that the shops are open means that everything is okay and everyone go back to work and we all pretend like everything is normal again um with just added mask um but like the reality is most of those low-paid workers are young people who have who aren't in line for vaccination until very the very end. Um, but yet they're the ones that you're expecting to go back to work now and be on the front line, where everyone else who's working in offices are being encouraged to stay at home. So where is the balance there in like safety at all? There is none. None at all, and, and it's workers as usual being put behind the the importance of profits. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to the housing stuff for a second. You might have some opinions on this one, Michelle yourself. I'm sure you saw the the article going around on Twitter. Uh, Jennifer Bray's article on page six of the Times talking about how TDs can't get onto the property ladder. Um, now a TD, I think on the basic TD salary, you get ninety eight thousand euros, right? So it just just gives you an idea of how difficult it is to get on the so called property ladder. However. The, the article is based around James O'Connor, who happens to be the youngest TD in Leinster House. He's a rising star in Fianna Fáil. Uh, and he says, I think it says an awful lot when a member of the Oireachtas can't afford to purchase a one-bed property in Dublin city centre. It is very reflective of just how dire the situation has become. And he's not wrong, right? But there's shades of Porig Flynn off this one, right? Because he's saying, for now, the Yall-based TD is unable to even consider buying a one-bedroom property in Dublin for the night spent away from his Cork East constituency. So this is effectively a second home from now. In fairness to him, he's living with his parents because he probably can't afford to buy in his own area too. But he's really looking for somewhere to stay in Dublin. Um, and, and that's fair enough as well. I actually have always been of the belief that there should be some sort of a, a hotel specifically for TDs there that's owned by the state that's a non-profit system. But, um, but I just find it fascinating that a TD on 98 grand is really getting upset about the housing situation, particularly when his, his own party has the minister position in, in charge of housing. And, you know, he's talking about the uproar that's going to come out of this. And here, here's a, a piece that I took from it. This is what I believe the article is really about. If we don't tackle it, everybody knows what the consequences are going to be. Not, by the way, I'll go on in a second, but not his concern for homelessness or his concern for people not having housing. The consequences will be that the public at the next election will vote us out of office. So that's what his biggest fear is, uh, is is losing his position as a TD. It's not about the, you know, almost 10,000 people that are on how, are in homelessness and the 
uh, tens of thousands of people who are on housing lists all over the country. It's about getting voted out, which is a really interesting perspective. And I don't know whether you have any perspectives on it yourself. Yeah, well, it's just funny because it's like, oh, we're only caring about it now because middle class voters who will vote us uh, back in are going to be affected. Like, he obviously doesn't care about the people who've been affected by it for years in the housing crisis. But now that it's affected him and his voting base, now he cares about it. Um, I just, yeah, like, as you said, like, he's he's not naming the, the homelessness crisis that's gone on for years. And actually, there is a there is a piece um in the Indo about it as well from Larissa Nolan. And she kind of said the same same thing. She said, uh, you know, she's been, you know, hoarse from screaming about this uh, the last seven years to deaf ears. But her feelings have changed to fury when she realized the nation only fully woke up to when it started affecting them. So obviously, there's been, like, ripple effects now the last two weeks, particularly, around that but like a lot of people have been seriously struggling since like as she says around 2014 where people have been suffering since then but now that it's affecting people who want their own home and home ownership that's when um you know we're seeing a few more murmurings but like really really we're not seeing enough but even at that like surprised that it's affecting their voter base so much I'm still not we're not still seeing the action like and there was actually a piece as well about Ono Brin saying oh or uh not Ono Brin sorry uh Darrow Brian saying, oh, we're going to be bringing, um, you know, a range of options and how we're going to solve this and all of that. And yeah, like, is this going to be like where he pushed it down the line and we drag it out again the same way when he he was like, oh, we're going to fix the co-living problem. We'll drag it out down the line until every single um, co-living application was in. um, And, you know, some of them are like in, in line to go ahead. But he did this whole thing where it looked like he was going to do something and then delayed it so much that it didn't make didn't really make any effect at all. So this whole thing of buying up the estates, the cuckoo funds or whatever, is he just going to delay this to the point where all of the estates that have been built in the last whatever amount of years are just bought up and there are simply no other estates for them to buy up? Because that kind of that's the direct line I'm I'm making with this anyway when I'm reading about, oh, don't worry, we, do, we didn't need to vote in that motion during the week. We'll just push down the line. I'll bring something. I bring loads of options. and. God knows what those options are even going to look like in the first place, but I, I doubt any of them are going to be a proper a proper solution to what this is. Yeah, I, I did. Ah, we have to give a shout out to Dara O'Brien for trying to uh, dig a hole in the ground there out in, I think it was Lusk and Dunleamber, the housing estate out there, which I know quite well myself. But uh, yeah, they you know the way politicians always turn up to turn the first sod and then do nothing. And it was very clear the guy has never held a shovel in his life. He uh, <laughs> He couldn't get the first little lump of muck up out of the ground and I ended up shoveling up a couple of stones um, and everybody's laughing about it and it is hilarious but you know it does show the the one of the reasons potentially for the lack of uh, or the slow uh, movement moving of affordable housing being built is the fact that they can't get that first sod turned it was a great analogy for that but um yeah he's talking about in page again page six of the Irish Times he's, he's talking about how he's going to stop the bulk purchase by hedge funds and you know investment funds of of whole housing estates and he's talking about um two potentially two options that he's going to present on Tuesday one of which is uh reserving a percentage of units for first time buyers so just not not giving you the whole cake we'll give you a few crumbs from the cake and that'll sort you out um but he, one of the others is just uh one of the things that actually struck me on that right underneath that bit is he said however 
the government would be aware of unintended consequences. And immediately what went into my head was the unintended consequences he's talking about is actually housing people and allowing people to have their own homes. And um, I have one more story, uh, and they're two, well, two stories, but they're linked. And one is, I can't find it here. It's, it's in um, the Irish Times as well, but it's about the two journalists uh, who were referred to last week by um, Owen Harris. Well, not, not referred to last week, but he's been hounding them uh, for a number of weeks. Um, that they're, uh, let me just say, it, journalists seek details of Twitter account holders in Harris's tweet. So it's Alison Morris of the Belfast Telegraph and Ethan Moore of the Irish Examiner who've been getting who received huge uh, amounts of abuse from Owen Harris um, over, on his anonymous Twitter account. Uh, and they're looking for the details, right? So off Twitter, which is going to be an interesting one because they're looking for details of a number of accounts. But then the Irish Times had the cheek, the gall, to go and give a massive space in the letter to the editor space uh, of their paper to Owen Harris, where he presents himself again as the victim as if he did nothing wrong through all of this um, stuff. The stuff that, by the way, got him sacked from the Irish Independent, from the independent media group who don't really sack people for for for, for little things. So he, he's given a massive space here to explain and, and, and cast aside any aspersions of him being a misogynist or his Twitter account being a misogynist and all the rest of it. And I did laugh to a degree at how he opened up the thing and immediately he blamed Sinn Féin on it the whole thing it's like I I mean I was happy enough when I hadn't bought because first thing I saw this morning um was was a link to that article and I was delighted it was behind the paywall because I couldn't actually access it um and uh, in, uh sadly I had to go out and buy the, the, the paper and then read the whole lot but it said sir a 78 year old man with terminal cancer can still uh learn this life lesson my cancer is not as malignant as the manipulations of Sinn Féin, whose hand is heavy behind the current campaign to cancel me. I mean, what an opening sentence to kick off your defence about why you abused uh, journalists and other people who presented themselves as having uh, or had independent opinions separate to your own. So I, I just found it appalling that they give the space to own Harris on this week of all weeks. But uh, I don't know, Michelle, if you have any observations on that? Yeah, for a man who uh, was being silenced, according to himself, he's certainly, certainly getting unquestionable uh, access to media, which is ridiculous. But that, I really, like, I read that article this morning, um, on it, or not, or the, whatever, the letter to the editor that he had sent in. And honestly, reading it, I was like, this man is a full-blown conspiracy theory, like a conspiracist. Like some of the stuff, like it was just bizarre. Like, like obviously, like he opened it with almost aligning his cancer with, and somehow, somehow making that look like that was something to do with Sinn Fein. But then uh, the last couple of lines was, "I will not go gently to my grave. I will fight Sinn Fein fascism with my last breath." Now, like I don't know, like honestly, like how was this published? Um, from from Black Rock County, Dublin. Um, like it's just. Yeah, I do. I actually don't even know how. Like some of the language used in it is just very hyperbolic. It's very uh, to the point where it's probably false, really. Um, bizarre, but yeah, I, yeah. As usual, he's trying to paint himself as a victim. Um, and there was actually a small article in the Irish Indo around this as well. And it looks like that um, the High Court is going to is going to say that the Owen Harris and Twitter will have to disclose information about the several media accounts that he's running. But at the same time, 
so the at least Aoife Moore and Alison Morris are probably will probably get the identities, but ne- there seems to be an indication that there's going to be orders sought to restrain the republication of those names. So while um at least the people who are you know Aoife and uh, Alison who are getting the vitriol thrown at them, they might know, but it might remain that everyone else won't unless they have to run court court cases as well, which is just. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just I, I just can't get over it. Like it looks like he's this is he's got he's not he's not going down without a fight anyway. He's trying to hide it in every way, and it is going to be interesting to see who those other accounts are and um who's who's linked to them. But yeah, he he is a misogynist, like that's clear, and he's still trying to clear his name in that article. He's still trying to say, oh, what people are saying I did this and I didn't do that. Like he's even repeating the stuff that people are saying about him as if oh god, I can repeat it. That I feel so confident I'm able to repeat it because I don't believe it to be true. Like, I just think that confidence in himself when we have so much evidence that he is clearly misogynist is, yeah, I, I, yeah, unbelievable. One of the things that struck me before we wrap up now, um, one of the things that struck me was debates that were going on on Twitter since the publication of that um, this morning, but also since the start of the Owen Harris debacle. Um, and it, especially after last night's Late Late Show where they had uh, people on from the Valley Murphy uh, families talking about it. And, a number of people tweeted saying, oh, it's amazing. We live 200 kilometers down south from Belfast and um, and uh, we knew nothing of what was going on at the time. And other people were saying, responding. Now, uh, I'm not going to take a position on this either, either way, but some people were saying, well, one of the reasons you didn't know was because of the censorship that took place at the time, partly uh, because of Owen, the likes of Owen Harris working over in RTE, who wouldn't allow... Uh, the Catholic or nationalist community to speak and the people that they had elected or people they had selected to represent them uh, in those communities weren't allowed to be heard down south. And, the, you know, at, in the week that Bally Murphy gets, the, the, the families get the, the, the justice, some of the justice that they deserve, um, to think about that, to think about the linkages between the southern establishment not letting people down here know exactly what was going on and allowing in some circumstances, those families to be tarnished as IRAs, uh, IRA activists and, and paramilitaries. Um, I, I just find it, it it's it's deplorable. And it, it's really interesting to see the debates that are going on. Michelle, though, before we do go, <laughs> what happened to you the other night? Do you want to tell us? Because I had this experience a couple of weeks ago myself. But you were down in the Debenhams picket line the other night. I watched some of the videos that you were putting up on, on, on social media. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so essentially, um, I got a phone call at midnight, just uh, Monday night, uh, going into Tuesday morning, um, that uh, two KPMG guys, uh, um, escorted in by three heavies, is what I was described as described as had gone into the building, and they the there was people on the picket at the time, so I I legged it across Waterford City with my big black cloak, cloak float uh, coat got flowing in the background and the girls are saying I look like Batman as I arrived on the scene like um so yeah and essentially as I had arrived a couple of other scab workers had started arriving at this stage and the security had come back out now to escort them into the building as well and there was attempts for that for that to you know to 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 maybe not allow that to happen and I think someone got a, a box in the arm um from one of the security men who would who had to get the workers in but all of this caught on video because I had like I was live streaming the minute I arrived I was live streaming everything because I know how these things can go down um that annoyed quite a lot of the guards who were who who arrived 
immediately at the same time as the workers got it was almost like they were both given the same time to turn up which they absolutely were and um, because the guards came over then to the to, to uh, who, us who were on the picket um, and said look uh, just so you know the vans are coming and we are taking the stock out tonight that stock is coming out tonight they are coming and the stock it wasn't a question it was a statement um, and they wanted to facilitate the protest in any way they could and they seemed to think that it was just going to be a little photo shoot or something we were like no I don't think you understand it's not like we're going to we're going to we're going to block this and we can take a photo and then we'll all just pretend like you know nothing happened that was what was going on they were trying to it, it was so, such a bizarre interaction so you had a, a number of these guards trying to be your best friend who were like oh um we'll facilitate you whatever way you want you know you have a right protest we don't want what happened in Dublin and Tralee to happen to you so we wouldn't want that at all um but these guards weren't some of these guards weren't from Waterford so they had obviously either been at the other protest or had come down and they were specialists in public order or whatever it was um but yeah so that that so there was about three or so large vans arrived immediately and then they were subsequently followed by another three large vans who got out, jumped out, and had barriers and closed off all three entrances to where we were picketing. So no other supporters could come down. Now at this stage we probably had about uh thirty to forty supporters in within the within ten minutes because Waterford's a very small, condensed place. We could all get down quite quickly. Um, and we were all obviously very much on high alert the last while, so we knew to move quickly when when, when things were happening. Um, so at this stage, um we had about six large guard vans, all of the roads had been closed off to the point where I was questioning, are we being kettled right now? Um, is that what's happening? We like uh it was it was very, very yeah. So anyway, then the guards were saying, Yeah, so the vans are gonna come down at X time and there were or the trucks were gonna let them in um and use our news are gonna have to move them there was cars blocking up the stock entrance there was people blocking up the stock entrance um and yeah so what essentially happened was um we we'd been kind of having this kind of back and forth with the guards for about an hour and a half at this stage and there was two vans who had parked down one end of the street that was blocked off and there was some sort of like order given anyway and next minute these two vans open up and about 10 guards from each van came out and started marching two by two like soldiers at war up the street towards us and you can hear in the live stream like I started being like um, and the girls were like Jesus Christ what's going on it was to look at it I've never seen anything like it this almost paramilitary response of these guards walking up two by two in their dark vests um, to take women who are like in their 50s and 60s off a picket by dragging them up by their arms and legs, uh, like one limb each by by the guards. And like there was there was like some of the protesters were quite like old as well. Like when the lads was like 70, like I was the young, probably one of the youngest people there. Um, I got, also got dragged off by my arms and legs up in the air. I actually got dropped in the middle of it. You can hear them saying, "Oh, regrab her, regrab her," and then I stand up and my top was like up on up over up. Anyway, and when the girls like, Jesus, pull your top down, like you, you know, but like it was just mad the response. And then they moved the the car, the guards got the keys and moved the cars out of the way of the where the stock was going in, completely facilitated the whole thing. Um, I I was re- recording the whole thing and I was recording the bands and stuff, and it was actually so weird to see the two trucks that arrived. Obviously, the two male drivers had kids with them, had kids with them. 
there was two kids in one of the front of the trucks and there was another kid in the other truck they were all definitely under the age of probably 17 say one two of them were about 14 15 and one was maybe like 17 or so but all kids and like aside from the fact that they're in a commercial vehicle and i feel like there's probably insurance reasons there like insurance implications there for them unless they were actually um employed by the, the companies which i doubt but yeah, it seems like the, the two lads had maybe potentially brought their children along to help facilitate this uh, breaking and crossing of a picket. It was so bizarre. Um, but yeah, the guards completely facilitated the whole thing. They had this was happening. Um, you know, we obviously questioned them on, you know, why they were allowing this. It was, this, this was an official picket, um, you know, that the, all of this happened. They said, well, look, they were acting in, in accordance with the injunction from February. Um, and I said, well, so injunctions override official pickets, is that it? So, like, do official pickets even mean anything at this stage? If you can just get an injunction and completely override it, like, do you know what I mean? Um, and look, they weren't having any of it anyway. And they kind of eventually just got sick of us and carried uh, carried us all off um, and left us behind the barriers. And um, and then the, the stock was moved out, tried to block the vans from the, the trucks from moving out when they did. But the guards, again, uh uh, kind of move move people aside uh, as the trucks were allowed to leave and it looked it was a very emotional uh, there was tears there was you know there was anger there was um yeah it's been a long struggle i know um just yesterday it was 400 day mark of the the pickets um and at the moment there is a, a vote happening with the union members i, I believe so look it's all it, it's some time and i know that cork and limerick now are the last two um the last two places that have stock left in them. Um, and I know that there's been movement there this week as well in both of those locations. So I can only imagine what's going to happen in the next couple of days there as well. It's probably going to be the same thing, but they seem to have a very, uh, they seem to have the playbook fairly written out at this stage, how they do it. They have about 20 kind of local community guards trying to negotiate being everyone's best friend. And then they have 20 public order police that come in paramilitary style like walking it like marching in towards workers to carry them off the arms and legs and that was it the stock was gone yeah it's very clear that they're well trained well organized on that um we we saw the same sort of system in in uh in parnell street there a couple of weeks ago when the five public order univans were all sitting around the corner in um, in a laneway hiding uh, until the, they got the call to come down and, and move the barriers and shift people and all the rest of it. Yeah, no, it's, and it is very, very intimidating. So I'm, I'm glad nobody was seriously hurt because there is potential for somebody being uh, being hurt from it. And look, the Waterford guys, you know better than I do, but uh, I've been in contact with, with, with Michelle there um, during the week, um, the shop steward, and she was saying, you know, she's she's fine. She's delighted that, um, that they've, shown themselves up for 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 what they are heroes of the industrial struggle and all the rest of it it's it's they're really inspirational activists down there as well as the rest of them across the country but yeah it's it's not nice when you're put in those situations and we can just look at the state and uh, we talked about a, a, a few minutes ago about how there's a helpline if you want to report a worker who refuses to come back for whatever reasons but you know, here is a company that, that that avoided paying its contractual ob obligations to its staff. And rather than the state doing something about that, it's sending in the guards. It's the high court is a point giving orders to, to remove people, to get them off the picket lines. And as you said, the legislation is such that the high court order supersedes the 1990 Industrial Relations Act. So the workers don't really have much power. 
Uh, and maybe we'll get into a discussion around some of that stuff uh, very, very soon about the, the, the different pieces of legislation and who is prioritised in the Irish state workers or capital. And as I think we can probably gather and listeners on this show to this show will probably gather is that it's not really workers or labour that are, are, are valued. It's the uh, preservation uh, of accumulation and preservation of capital that gets protected. But look, we're, we're well over time. Um, and I have to get ready to go to a protest in relation to Palestine as well. And I'm sure you have, Michelle. <laughs> so uh, listen, this has been the week at work. We're part of the Left Block, Left Block uh, podcast group and, and uh, political education and media project. Um, we really could do with your support. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. Like us, follow us on social media, subscribe, share, do the usual stuff. And if you want to contribute a few quid every week, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash left block. Uh, again, thanks very much for listening and we'll talk to you all soon.